please join with me in reading the Bible together. Today's passage is from Genesis chapter 41, verses 44 to 57. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him Athenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Athenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Thanks, Meg. And I pray as we open up God's word together. God, our Father, we pray that as the sun has risen this morning, and shone its light, we pray that you might uh, reveal to us um, your word, that you might speak to us again, that you might speak to us as you spoke all creation into being so many years ago. We pray that you might speak and newly create in us hearts that are shaped more into the likeness of your Son. Keep us, shape us, mould us and use us for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, we are diving back into Genesis. If you uh, remember the previous series that we've uh, been doing through Genesis, we've found a a God really that um, seems to take great delight in working through the most unlikely of people. Uh, the messiest of families, you know, half of these families, um, I wouldn't be making youth group leaders. And yet God seems to be, they're the people that he chooses to work through, right? You read Genesis and it's like a Jerry Springer episode. And we're introduced to Jacob and his sons and it's incredibly messy dynamic. Jacob's kind of the spoil, uh, Jacob favours Joseph, the youngest son, and he's the spoiled favourite that kind of gets to stay inside while everyone else works in the field. And the brothers, in their jealousy, end up selling Joseph to slavery. 
where eventually he's taken to Egypt and he excels in Egypt, right? He thrives. Only to suddenly have false accusations made and be thrown into prison. And Roger ended our series last time speaking about how God delivered him up out of prison through the dreams of, uh, through his relationships in that prison cell with Pharaoh's court. And Pharaoh then is given uh, a dream of these skinny cows and fat cows and the fat cows, the skinny cows eat the fat cows. And um, it's a terrifying nightmare. Um, And Joseph is brought before Pharaoh and he reveals what the dream means. Seven years of great abundance, followed by seven years of the worst famine you've ever seen. And so Pharaoh asks this once prisoner, what should I do? And Joseph says, set, set over someone responsible over all to take one-fifth of everything during those first seven years and, and store them so that we might endure and survive the seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh does just that, except he says, you're the man I'm going to choose, and he makes Joseph his man. And that's where we left with Roger last time, and that's where we start in our series this time. In our passage, we're kind of going to be looking at three different things. We're breaking it up. Joseph's success... Joseph's sons and the world's salvation. Joseph's success, Joseph's sons and the world's salvation. You see, Joseph's success has really happened in a matter of 24 hours. There has never been a quicker rags to riches story. You know, it's like he invested in Bitcoin but on steroids before it dropped and everything crashed, right? He, imagine this. You wake up in the morning, sore, cold, on stone. You get your breakfast and it's kind of slops and stew, bits of rat, great protein. You're wearing kind of scraps of clothes in the morning, only to go to sleep at night in Silk in a silk bed. The second most kind of lavish bedroom in probably the known world at the time, all in a matter of kind of 12 hours. How disorientating. You'd look at the, the hand, you'd look at the finger on your hand and you kind of, this is Pharaoh's ring. You kind of look over to the side, that's, the robe that Pharaoh wears on his back and yet it's on my floor. So quickly has he risen, given an Egyptian name, married to an elite priestess of the god of Ra. 
And so Joseph then spends the next seven years traveling throughout the land. And, and his word is law. What he says happens. In fact, Pharaoh says last time that, that no one will raise a foot unless you say so. No one will lift their hand unless you give the word. As you walk through the street, everyone will bow down to you saying, make way, here he comes. And so Joseph spends seven years going around the land, building these storehouses and collecting the grain. Until verse 49, Joseph stored up such huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. I don't know about you, but this is probably not what would happen if I suddenly rose to Joseph's position in Egypt. Remember Joseph's story, betrayed by his brothers, sold like a slave to Egypt by his own family? Served faithfully in Potiphar's house, worked diligently to the point where Potiphar's family and kind of real estate grew under his stewardship only to have false allegations made against him and thrown into prison where he would remain for years and years and years. And this isn't prison like our prisons. This is a prison in the ancient Near East where it is not nice by any standard. I'll tell you what I would be doing if I was suddenly made judge and ruler over all of Egypt. Day two. Alright, I want you to get together as many people as you can and make sure Potiphar and his wife are there. Isn't it? Falsely thrown into prison. Time to even the scales. Time to bring about justice. And then, then I'm going to go visit my brothers. And yet that's not what Joseph seems to do. I think the second thing that we're meant to wonder here, not just is the lack of mention about kind of justice or vengeance or the balancing of scales, but we're meant to wonder, has Joseph become Pharaoh's man, really? Has Joseph become Egyptianized? Given the royal ring, given the royal robe, given the uh, married to a foreign priestess of, a, of an Egyptian god? Has he collected so much Egyptian grain, more Egyptian grain than sand in the sea, all the while forgetting that God's promise was for another land and for offspring more than the sand of the sea? Verse 50. 
Joseph, uh, God did not forget about Joseph when he was in prison, but has Joseph forgotten about God now that he's in the pinnacle? Because let's face it, sometimes it is easier to remember God in the hard times, is it not? Now that's what Chris said, right, when he was being interviewed, right? What did COVID do? Brought me to my knees and you just had to depend on God more. I remember hearing a missionary talk about, he, uh, he was being interviewed and they said, um, man, it must have been really hard to be a Christian over in the, in the Congo. And he said, no, no, no. He said, waking up in a house without a lock on the door, knowing that today was going to be a hard day, that you would go without meals, knowing that you were going to be meeting people who might be trying to entrap you, meeting in small groups, wondering whether the doors would be kicked down, not sure where our next meal was going to come from. He said being a Christian was the easiest thing in the world. Because you're forced to depend on God in those situations. And he said, it is far harder to be a Christian, to depend upon God, here where life is easy and distraction is rich. Isn't it? Rarely am I ever more prayerful than when I've got a toothache. Yeah? When marriage is hard. When finances are tough and you're not sure how you're really going to get through it. It is easy to depend on God then. But when life is easy, it can be easy to forget about God. Has Joseph succumbed to Egypt in his prosperity? And the answer we find is in the naming of his sons. Joseph's sons, verse 50 through 52. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. By Azaneth, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble in my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. You see, for all of Joseph's success in Egypt and for all of his misfortune in Israel, well, not in Israel, but with his family, he has given his sons Hebrew names. Hebrew names. And in a time and place in the world where names tell you a lot, Names are a declaration of loyalty. Joseph shows his hand. His loyalty is to the Hebrew God. And not just that, but he gives 
us insight into what's kind of going on for him in his head and his heart. Manasseh. Why does he call his firstborn? Because, verse 51, God has enabled him to forget or to let go of the suffering and wrongdoing that was done to him by his father's household. And suddenly we start to see why Joseph hasn't kind of sought to balance the scales. That God has enabled him to forget the wrongdoing that was done to him. I don't think it's that he just doesn't remember it, like he's got amnesia. Rather, it has no hold on him anymore. That he is not stewing on it. That Joseph isn't replaying it over and over and over again in his mind. That Joseph isn't kind of speaking about it to every servant staff. That its claws no longer hold sway in his life. Because God has enabled him to move past it. And I think this is something that our society just doesn't really know how to do. In fact, you can, I remember listening to Sam Harris, he's a famous kind of atheist, I think from Melbourne maybe, um, him speaking, he was speaking on Joe Rogan's podcast and he said, we've got to figure out how to do reconciliation in our world because we've got no idea. The man who, who makes um, his career on being an atheist and he says, we've got no idea how to do reconciliation He says, in our current society, we don't know how to do forgiveness. And yet Joseph, 4,000 odd years ago, seems to have found the answer. And, And I'm not saying it's an easy thing. I know that people have gone through horrific things Trust me, as a pastor, like I, there have been countless times I've driven to meetings and sat there with people as they've shared their stories of just horrific things, things that people should never have to have gone through. People that they trusted that betrayed them. And yet, as Christians, often we can fall into the trap of replaying and replaying and replaying these things in our minds. And retelling and retelling those stories and stewing on them. And rather than seeing people set free, the chains kind of are only, the chains only remain and that people never I've seen it. People never really find any kind of peace or or freedom from from the past wrongdoings done to them. 
Now, I do think, and I, I do want to kind of have this caveat, that there is a place for replaying and there is a place for retelling these stories of wrongdoings and hardships, particularly with kind of professionals, to help you process and work through these things, right? And yet, Joseph here says, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has enabled me to forget the wrongs that my family, my household has done to me. Cory Ten Boom, some of you might know. I believe, Matt, are you reading Cory Ten Boom, some of, his, some of her stuff with one of your daughters? But Cory Ten Boom was uh, a Dutch woman and she and her sister Betsy um, were lived in the Netherlands during World War II. And during World War II, they um, hid Jews from the Nazis and eventually they were caught and taken to a concentration camp. And in that concentration camp, um, she survived, but her sister Betsy didn't. And she would go on to become a speaker and a Bible teacher, and she would um, kind of tell her story around Europe. And um, she says this, just a few years after the ending of the war, and I'm paraphrasing, she was at a church in Munich. She says, I was at a church in Munich where I was speaking and I saw him. The former SS man who stood guard at the so-called shower room door. That he, with the other guards, had often run his hands over naked bodies as they went by and responded callously to requests for help. He was the first of our actual jailers that I ever that I had ever seen after the war. And suddenly it was all there again, the heat of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, when he came up to me as the church was empty. And he said, how grateful I am for your message. To think, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, but mine stayed by my side. Angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hands and I realised I could not. I silently prayed, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And then my hand began to raise. And the most incredible thing happened from my shoulder, along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. That here in the Bible we find that God, the God of Joseph, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is able to do the impossible. 
that he is able to raise someone not just from the chains of prison, but he is able to release someone from the chains and the bitterness and the hurt of past wrongdoing. And my second son, he says, my second son will be called Ephraim. Why? Because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. That in his suffering, that God has produced a fruit. That for all of his hardship, for all of kind of the difficulty, for all of the the hunger and the pain and the tears, that God has not been absent or, or not at work. That God has produced in him a fruit. And that is the same promise that is for the Christian as well. That suffering and hardship in this life is never wasted. It's never good. The Bible never speaks of suffering or evil or wrongdoing as something good, but it does say that in the hands of the potter it is never wasted. It's never meaningless. Rather, as the New Testament puts it, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up the rarest of pearls. And suffering, suffering is what was coming. Because, see, the years of abundance, they ended. And the seven years of famine came and Make no mistake, this is a salvation event. Uh, We've got historical records of two different famines in in Egypt, both of which went for multiple years that resulted in Egyptian cannibalism. So extreme these famines were that the kind of documents speak about parents eating their children. How hungry do you have to be? How desperate, how just out of your mind in hunger do you have to be for that to happen? And not just that in your th- thinking in your family's kind of viewpoint, but what's the society, what's the neighbourhood like, right, when there's that kind of hunger? Think of the crime. Think of the chaos. Think of the madness and the violence and just the sheer fear. This is about salvation. This is about life. This is about death. And when the famine, verse 56, had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. 
for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And the whole world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. That through it all, in God's sovereign hand, he had been working all things, shaping even the worst of evils. The selling of Joseph into slavery. His time in prison on false allegations. Why? To bring about salvation to the world. And that's what the author of Genesis wants us to read, right? Like he could have just listed of this surrounding nation, of this surrounding people group, of this surrounding tribe. No, 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 he's saying of the whole known world, everyone came to this man Joseph to find life. And so in this story, we see, we see a shadow of the salvation to come. One of the things when preaching that I do is I try to think, what does this passage mean? What is it saying? And then what does it mean and what is it saying to us? Right? It's typically what you do preaching. And you might go, that's not that hard. Yeah, it's not. You should do it. Um, <laughs> what is the passage saying and what does it mean for us? And so as I'm preparing this, I'm kind of stewing on it going, Is this passage kind of about God's sovereignty in hardship? Yes, but more than that. Is this passage about kind of God bringing fruit in suffering? Yes, but more than that. Is it about kind of uh, forgiveness and kind of reconciliation? Yes, more than that. This is a story of one This is a story of one who was traded for a handful of coins by those he had named his brothers. This is the story of one who was trumped up on false charges and abandoned to the pit, only to be exalted and lifted up so that any who might find life might come to him and that nations would take refuge in him. That Joseph foreshadows the greater Joseph, Jesus, the one who would come and be traded for coins by his brothers, betrayed, on false trumped up charges, thrown into chains, condemned to the pit, only for God to raise him up, exalt him, that any who come, starving, hungry, impoverished, from far off lands, might find life for them, for their children, for their neighbours. Where else have we to turn when you alone have the words of eternal life? How about I pray?
Lord Jesus, we we come to you too often trying to think of ourselves as Joseph, I guess, in, when we read passages like this, when really we are we are those who are starving and hungry, and yet you have provided one who we might find life and food and sustenance from and and we we can search and we can search and we can search elsewhere and yet we will never be satisfied you alone lord have the grain that will sustain us sustain us in this we pray amen